The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of Crown Point Baptist Church and Pastor Mark Ermler. Okay, let's go to Colossians chapter number 1, Colossians chapter number 1. And uh, we're uh, going to look at just one simple verse of Scripture. I want to just teach a simple truth tonight. It's very simple. But I will tell you it's one of the most profound truths that I personally have ever learned. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, although I've learned it, I'm still learning it, if that makes any sense at all. Sometimes you can intellectually apprehend a truth, but it takes time for you to spiritually really understand the fullness of the truth. In other words, it's, it's so profound, you don't always get it right off the bat. But I'd like to introduce the thought to you. For some of you, it's going to simply be a reminder of something you already know. And for others of you, perhaps uh, the Lord will turn the lights on in a way that hasn't happened before. And that's what we hope to happen here tonight. But I want to preach a message simply entitled, God's Theolo uh, Continental Theological Divide. God's Continental, or uh, Theological Continental Divide, I guess would be the best way to put it. Now, I'm sure many of you have driven uh, Interstate 80 or Interstate uh, 70 across uh, country. And when you drive cross country, if you're coming west, I'm sure the same thing would be go if you're going east. But there's a big, huge sign. Of course, when you're RVing, you know when you're going uphill. You know what I'm talking about? Because your engine grinds down. You have to drop down a gear or two. And you're just climbing, climbing for eight, nine, ten miles. And you get to the top. And there's a big sign. United States Western Continental Divide. How many have ever seen that sign? Okay. Okay, you know what I'm talking about. Now, at that point, did you know there's something unbelievable that occurs up there? If a raindrop falls on the western side of the Continental Divide, guess where it ends up? Pacific Ocean. Boy, she's got it down. Okay, if it falls on the eastern side of the Continental Divide, where does it end up? In the, the Gulf of Mexico, which eventually would go to the Atlantic Ocean. So here's the point is, that's a big difference. Wouldn't you agree? Inches apart makes a huge difference on its final destination. Did you know there's a theological Continental Divide? You know, when it comes to salvation, if you fall on the wrong side of the theological continental divide, when it comes to salvation, you'll end up dying your sins and going to judgment in an awful place Jesus called hell. If you fall on the correct side of the continental divide, you'll end up forgiven on your way to heaven. I'm not saying this at all facetiously. That's a huge difference. So it certainly is a huge difference when it comes to salvation. Can I submit something to you? I kind of alluded to this for those in Sunday school this morning. It's also a big deal when it comes to the Christian life. If you fall on the correct side of the theological continental divide, you'll live a Christian life marked by divine optimism, uh, blessing, power, uh, answers to prayer, uh, encouragement, and a lot of victory. If you fall on the wrong side of the theological continental divide in your Christian life, you end up pessimistic, discouraged largely, a lot of defeat, and a lot, a lot of answers to prayer, <laughs> pretty rare. So you say, okay, preacher, that's two drastically, drastically different destinations. So we're going to try to deal with this tonight, the theological continental divide. And you ask yourself, which side do I fall on? But before we continue this analogy, let me give you another uh, uh, way to look at it. Several years ago, I was in the state of Wyoming. How many have ever been to the state of Wyoming? It is the windiest state I have ever been in. I grew up in Chicago. They call it the Windy City. That should not be called that. Wyoming should be called the Windy State. Okay, but that's just my little gripe there. And, and I was in Wyoming, and uh, I, I was preaching one, I think, Tuesday, Wednesday, middle of the week sermon. And uh, when I finished preaching, I walked out to the lobby, and a young lady met me who I'm guessing was 22, 23 Kind of gave me the impression, you know, the age you'd be when you get out of college. I don't know that she went to college, but kind of that age. 
She begins a conversation with me, and here's what she said. Brother Van Gelderen, I have never heard what you preach tonight. Now, as a preacher, that's kind of, kind of how do you take that? <laughs> she said, I've been in church all my life, and been in Baptist churches for that matter, and I have never heard what you preach tonight. She said, um, I grew up at, and she named an independent Baptist church. If you know anything about independent Baptists, you know this church. She said, I grew up with this such and such independent Baptist church. She said, all my life. She said, a year ago, I moved out here to Wyoming, and I've been going to this church for a year. And she said, I have never heard what you preach tonight. She said, I always thought the Christian life was 50-50. 50% me and 50% God. Now, I want to ask you a question. Is that how you view the Christian life? Is it 50-50? Is it um, maybe 60-40, maybe 70-30, 80-20? How about 90-10? How about 95-5? The truth is, we've got to ask ourselves a very important question because the answer to the question is profound in its significance. How much of the Christian life is you and how much of the Christian life is me or you? I mean, or God, excuse me. How much of it is us and how much is of God? Because the answer to that question determines which side of the theological divide you are on when it comes to the Christian life. So let's go to Colossians chapter 1. Let's read verse 29. And it's a verse the Apostle Paul is giving us, could I say this, his theology of ministry. Notice what he says. Whereunto I also labor. Now what he's talking about is the truth that Christ lives in us. He warns, he said, I'm going to teach you and I'm going to warn you that Christ lives in you. And this is the only way you'll ever be mature in Christ Jesus. That's what he's basically saying. And then he says, whereunto I also labor, this great truth the central truth of his preaching, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Now, how do we look at that? Paul says he's laboring, he's striving, but he clearly says he's doing it according to his working. That's referring to Christ. If you look two verses back, Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's clearly talking about Christ, his working, which works in me mightily. So how much of the Christian life is God and how much of the Christian life is you? Well, the verse seems to indicate Paul's doing something. I mean, he's laboring, he's striving. Now, he is doing it according to Christ's working, who works in him mightily. So how does the Christian life work? Well, let me think about this for a moment, or let's think about this for a moment, because since it's so important, uh, let's make sure we're theologically precise tonight. Go down to verse number 6 of chapter number 2, and we find a clue. Look what verse 6 says. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Now this verse of scripture is telling us, and this helps us interpret the Bible, there's something that happens in the reception of Christ Jesus, clearly talking about salvation. When you receive Christ Jesus the Lord as your Savior, uh, that's of course the moment, uh, what we call a moment. Could we say that salvation is not a process? Salvation's an event. It's a crisis. By the way, if anybody believes salvation is a process, they have just entered works into the equation. Because faith is a moment in time. You trust Jesus to do what you cannot do. It's a reception. I would call the way, uh, how do you say, well, how do you receive something you cannot see? It's very simple. I would call it expectation. The moment a sinner expects Jesus to do what he said he'd do, he gets saved. <laughs> He's expecting Jesus to be his Savior. Okay, so as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, the Bible says, so walk ye in him. Now, the word walk is in a different tense of the Greek language. It's what they call the present tense, which simply means it's durative or continuative. So we could say this, salvation is a point in time, and the Christian life is a process. You agree with that? Well, that's what it's saying. 
Now, what God is saying is there's something that occurs in the moment you receive Jesus that needs to be duplicated in your Christian walk. Or could we say this? There's something that occurs in the moment you get saved that needs to be duplicated in every step of your Christian life. Now, that helps us understand something. What salvation is in a moment, the Christian life is in a process. Salvation is once for all. The Christian life is a step-by-step process. It's not once for all. Okay, now with that understanding, maybe we can learn something about salvation. Let's imagine you were witnessing to your next-door neighbor, and you were giving the gospel to your next-door neighbor, and your next-door neighbor says, okay, I got it, man. I'm going to try as hard as I can to get to heaven to get my sins washed away, and whatever I can't do, I'm going to trust Jesus to do the rest. Maybe I can do 5 or 10%, then I'm going to trust Jesus to do the rest. Would you be excited about this, that decision? And the answer is, No. That's not salvation. Now, don't miss this, friends. If my getting to heaven depended on me one one-hundredth of one percent, I would die in my sins and go to hell. If any percentage of my salvation depended on me, I would die in my sins and go to hell. In other words, I can't wash my sins away. I can't keep myself out of hell, and I certainly can't get myself to heaven. I have to trust Jesus to do all of that. So we understand that when you get saved... Uh, you don't need Jesus' help because you help infers I'm doing part of it and I'm trusting Jesus to do the rest. We need Jesus to do how much of it? All of it. So could we say when a man gets saved, oh, I can put it this way. When a man gets saved, how much of the saving does Jesus do? And the answer is all of it. And how much of the saving do you do? And the answer is none of it. You trust Jesus to do it all. So could we say that salvation is 0-100? Could we do that? Yeah, 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 salvation has to be 0, 100. Okay, you say, preacher, I get that. Well, that teaches us something because the Bible says just like you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, 0, 100, is the same way you walk in him, 0, 100. Now we got a problem. You say, what's the problem? Well, Paul says he's laboring. He says he's striving. So how do you get labor and striving? I mean, that seems like that's part of the percentage, doesn't it? Now, we need to be theologically precise here. Because if we're not, we'll get an error. Now remember, if you fall on the wrong side of the divide, it's not good. We want to fall on the right side of the divide. So let's go take up a couple steps back and let's look at it from a different angle. Could we do that? Um, a couple summers ago, I was out here east of L.A. in the mountains between the desert and L.A. or the Inland Empire. And a uh, beautiful camp I never, of course, knew was up there. And I and, uh, was preaching to about 150 kids every night. Uh, one of the nights, uh, a deer pastor from L.A., I don't know his name, he was young, really nice guy, good guy, I know God's going to use him, but he got up and unfortunately he said something that I disagreed with. He got up to the teenagers and he said, you know, teenagers, the Christian life's hard. The, I know the Christian life's difficult, and I could not more fervently disagree with him. So the next night I got up and I said this, you know, young people, the Christian life's not hard. The Christian life's not difficult. It's impossible. You say, well, preacher, what's the difference? The difference is enormous. Because if the Christian life's hard and difficult, what's the answer? Grit your teeth a little bit, man. Try harder. But I will tell you, that's not only the answer that does damage to the answer. The Christian life's impossible. If the Christian life's impossible, trying harder doesn't work. Do you know if you try harder to do the impossible, guess what? You still can't do it. You know why? Because it's impossible. 
Now, let me prove that the Christian life is impossible. Because some of you out here, I don't know if I see the Christian life is impossible. Well, let me help you understand it because I think you'll agree when we go through this. How about this? How much of the Bible can you spiritually be impacted by without the Holy Spirit? And the answer is none of it. In other words, you can intellectually apprehend it, but if you're not spiritually taught, you didn't get it. There's a spiritual dynamic to the book. Let me say this. I'd put my spiritual grandmother against any professor on planet Earth. Okay, why? Because she really knew the author. That helps. Really helps. Okay. Okay, I think you'll get that. How about this? How much effective praying can you do without the Holy Spirit? None. How many people can you win to Jesus without the Holy Spirit? How many other Christians can you spiritually bless and encourage without the Holy Spirit? You're, you're getting this. Some of you get a little, you, you know I'm setting a trap for you, so you're not saying nothing, okay? Uh, but anyway, uh, it doesn't mean we're not true. Okay, now how about another one? How much true victory can you have? Now let me stop for a moment. There is such a thing as false victory. You know what false victory is? Preacher, that woman did it to me again. Man, she provoked me sore. Man, I kept my mouth shut. Oh, there were so many things I wanted to say, but I, I usually would, but I didn't say it. And I clenched my teeth, and uh, I had victory. Well, clearly, it would be a whole lot better to clench your teeth than to say things that would be grievous words that would stir up anger. Okay, we get that. But that's not true victory. You say, preacher, what's true victory? True victory is not wanting to say those things. You say, preacher, that's impossible. That's the point. So how much true victory can you have without the Holy Spirit? And the answer is none. You weren't as convinced on that one, were you? See, the whole point is about the Christian life is it's impossible. Jesus said, in case you didn't get this, without me, ye can do, help me out now, nothing. How about this verse? Be strong in the Lord and in the power of... So who's mine? His mind. How about this one? I can do all things through Christ, which... So whose strength is it? It's Christ's. Now, you have to understand, friends... You say, well, preacher, I don't know. I don't, I don't, Paul says he's laboring, he's striving. So how do you reconcile that with what we're talking about? Okay, now let's move at another angle. Can we keep looking at it from different angles? Okay, how about this? 2 Corinthians chapter number 12, verse number 9 is a verse you all know, even though you may not know it by reference. Jesus said to the apostle Paul after he prayed three times for the thorn in the flesh to be taken from him, which personally I think was human. You say, why? Because he called it a messenger. That's the Greek word angelos. Every time that word angelos is used in the Bible, it's either an angelic being or it's a human being. But it's always a being. So that messenger of Satan personally, I think, was a human being. Now, I can't prove that. It just kind of adds to the, you know, you say, oh, I got a few thorns in the flesh. Okay, I figured you did. Okay, so I thought that might encourage you a little bit. Hopefully you're not married to one. Okay, but anyway... Um, but the, the point is that um, he, he said, Lord, you've got to take care of this. I mean, i got a problem. Three times, Lord, you've got to take care of this thorn in the flesh. It's a messenger of Satan, and it's buffeting me. You know what? Some of you thought a buffet was something, a buffet. It's not buffet. It's buffet. You know what that means? Okay, it means you got beat up. You just got beat up. Paul was saying, I'm getting beat up. I mean, the devil has beaten me up through this thorn. He's, that's why I thought it was a human being. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, there's not many other things that beat you up like uh, some carnal. Uh, uh, well, anyway, leave that alone. Okay, so he is getting buffeted, and he prays three times, and the Lord says, my grace is sufficient for thee. Here it is. 
For my strength is made perfect. Now you tell me the word. Weakness. The word weakness is a very interesting word in the Greek language. It is the word strength with an alpha or an A. Now, you know English well. What happens when you put the letter A before a noun in the, in the English language? And the answer is it negates the noun. Well, that same phenomenon occurs in the Greek. In fact, I believe English probably got it from Koine Greek. Can't prove that, but I would assume that's the case. Now, let me illustrate that if I could. Theist. A theist is somebody who believes in God. Okay, doesn't mean they're saved, but they just believe there's a God out there. If you put an A before the word theist, does it change the definition at all? And the answer is dramatically. So how much does an atheist or an atheist, how much does an atheist believe in God? And the answer is none. Can I submit to you that I agree with one of the commentators who defined the word weakness this way? Weakness in the sense of, I love this definition, strengthlessness. The complete absence of strength. Now we got another problem. You say, preacher, that's impossible. Now, folks, let me just say this. If this, morning, this evening, if you had no physical strength, see, many times we hear the word strength in the Bible or power or might. By the way, there's four power words that are used often in the New Testament. Well, one we get the word energy from, one we get the word dynamite from. But these energy words are power words in the Bible. There's four of them. Often when we hear these words, we automatically assume they're talking about physical might. We just do because we're Americans. We just think that way. But if you were here tonight and did not, or let me just say this, if you did not have any physical strength, do you know where you'd be tonight? In a morgue, six feet under the ground. The very presence of your being here, or if you're breathing at all, you have some measure of physical strength. So when the Apostle Paul says, that, or Jesus says, excuse me, to the Apostle Paul, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. I believe what he's saying is, my strength is made perfect in your complete absence of strength. And what he's saying is, you know that thorn you don't like, Paul? That thorn is a constant reminder that when it comes to spiritual strength, you're absolutely bankrupt. <laughs> Do you know how much spiritual strength you have tonight, friends, in and of yourself? And the answer is, you and I don't have any. <laughs> now, I don't know about you, isn't that exciting? You say, what do you mean exciting? I mean, I don't have any spiritual strength. That's exciting. It's absolutely exciting. Because Jesus said, my strength is made perfect in what? Your strengthlessness. So you know how the apostle Paul reacted to that? The Bible tells us how he did. Most gladly, therefore, would I rather glory in my infirmities. Do you know what infirmities is? It's the same word in the plural. Well, I glory in my strengthlessnesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So, friends, let me just simply say, there's a difference between physical strength and, and, and spiritual strength. We all have physical strength. But none of us in and of ourselves have spiritual strength. Remember that word verse again? Be strong in the Lord and the power of? Yeah, it's his might. We're not talking about physical strength. We're talking about spiritual strength. I can do all things through Christ, which? It's his strength. Not mine. It's his. We're not talking about physical strength. We're talking about spiritual strength. Uh, that which is miraculous, that which is supernatural. Okay. Now, Paul says, Wherefore I labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. So you say, well, Okay, preacher, I'm getting this. It's not 50 50, not 60 40, 70 30, whatever. It's 0 100. But, preacher, how does that look? How does that work? 
Now remember, we're not talking about inactivity here because the Apostle Paul says he's laboring and striving. So you say, preach, how does this work? I mean, how does 0-100 look? How, does it, how, 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 how do you do this? I get it at salvation. You trust Jesus to do everything. But in the Christian life, you've you got to do stuff. You've got to open your Bible. You've got to pray. Okay, so how does this work? That's a very good question. And if you still understand that we are absolutely bankrupt of spiritual strength, that helps us understand it. Although we have physical strength, we don't have spiritual strength. So we've got to think about doing the impossible. One of my favorite stories in the Bible that helps helps us, I believe, understand this truth, is the picture of Peter walking on the water. Now, i got a question for you. Is walking on the water hard, and is walking on the water difficult? And the answer is, no. It's impossible. I don't think anybody out here has ever walked on water. In fact, have you noticed in the Olympics, they don't have a walking on the water competition. Have you noticed that? Now, some of us from Wisconsin, we do walk on the water, couple months a year, but that's a little different. And some of you that raised in California are still looking at me, what in the world are you talking about? Okay, ask some of the, the northern people. They can tell you about walking on water. They even drive trucks on the water in Wisconsin. <laughs> okay, if they do in March, they usually lose their truck. But anyway, in uh, March, uh, January and February, it usually holds up. But okay, so we get that. Walking on water is impossible. Now, the United States of America has phenomenal athletes. I think we all know that. And when it comes to professional athletes, they are outstanding athletes. But did you know none of them can walk on water? Tom Brady cannot walk on water. He can deflate footballs, but he cannot walk on water. See? Even your Los Angeles Dodgers, they can't walk on water. They can lose. What was that? Uh, how many games in, in late August, early September, uh, over 10 in a row? Okay, but they, they can't walk on water. Okay, we all know that. They show their little chink there. Hopefully that was temporary for all you Dodgers fans. But, but the point I'm making is, I don't matter how good an athlete they are, they can't do that. They can't walk on water. Can't do it. Just can't do it. So we've all determined the fact that Peter walking on water, Peter did something that was impossible. In fact, other than Jesus, there's no human being who's ever done it. So this is remarkable. <laughs> like really remarkable. But it also teaches us about the Christian life. Because Peter walked on the water. Say the Bible says, as you save Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Okay, so let's think about it. Now, I don't want to go into a whole message on Peter walking on the water, but Peter's in the boat, and he cries out to the Lord, If it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And Jesus said one word. Does anybody know what the word was? And the answer is, come. Now, at that point, Peter was faced with a command. So in the imperative mode, and Jesus was saying, come. Now, don't, I'm not trying to be tricky here, and I always get somebody who gets it wrong, and don't feel bad if you get it wrong, but we're going to get this. Did Peter use physical muscles to get out of the boat and step on the water? And the answer is, yeah, he did. Was Peter trusting his physical strength to walk on water? And the answer is, no. You know why? Because I don't care how, you could be the strongest man on planet Earth who can't walk on water. Physical strength had nothing to do with walking on water. But his getting out of the boat using physical strength and physical muscles simply meant he was depending on Jesus to enable him to do what he could never do unless Jesus enabled him to do it. That's the Christian life. The Christian life is obeying Jesus, obeying his word, getting out of the boat with physical strength, but depending on Jesus to spiritually enable you to do what would be impossible if he did not enable you to do it. 
Now let's talk about the Christian life. Some out here, you know, preacher, I have a hard time. I've had people tell me, I have a hard time reading the Bible. I have a hard time getting anything from it. I remember several years ago, we had a young lady in one of our meetings. She got up to give a testimony, guessing about 16. She said, I have my devotions every day. She said, now for months, I've been getting nothing from the Word of God. She said, I don't know why. Or at least I didn't coming into the week. And she said, I asked God, oh God, would you show me why? Then she smiles and she said, Yesterday, God showed me why. I've been trying to get something out of my devotions. She said, I got up yesterday, opened the Bible, read a chapter, didn't get anything from it. She said, this morning I got up, read the same chapter, opened the Bible to the same chapter, but before I read it, I said, God, could you teach me? Because I can't get anything out of your word. She began to cry. She said, I read the same chapter I read yesterday, didn't get anything from it yesterday, but she said, today, God showed me so many things. You know what she was learning? Zero, 100 when it comes to Bible study. Did she use muscles to get out of the boat? Yeah. She had to open the Bible. She had to use her eyes. But she wasn't depending on them. She was depending on the author to teach her. The same thing could be said for somebody, you know, I pray, but I fall asleep. I don't get much front of prayer. Try this. God, I don't know what to pray for as I ought. Would you show me what to pray for? And would you give me strength to do it? You think... Jesus can show you what to pray for? You think he can give you the strength to do it? We're talking spiritually. Not physically, spiritually. Yeah, sure he can. <laughs> How about uh, evangelism? Oh, you say, preacher, I'm just, I can't talk. Uh, you know, I get tongue-tied and I put words. You know, the more ineffective you are in communication, the better soul winner you'll be. You know why? Because some of the rest of us trust the tongue and you got to trust Jesus or you know you're done. But you'll never want anybody to Jesus until you get out of the boat. You know in that conversation you're having with your neighbor across the fence? And the Holy Spirit says, go. Go there. And there's a reservation in your heart. Oh, I'm not very good at this. Well, you know, your gospel presentation is a whole lot better than nobody's gospel presentation. Did you know that? So there they are, the Holy Spirit saying, okay, go. You say, oh, preacher, I am not good at this. Okay, the point is, get out of the boat, open your mouth, start giving the gospel, and trust Jesus to enable you to do what you know you cannot do unless he enables you to do it. That's the Christian life. Oh, you say, okay, preacher, I get that. How about, how about victory? You know, that your spouse does whatever it is. You know how it is. Those buttons get pressed and that lever gets pulled. You know what I'm talking about? And the next thing that happens, <laughs> grievous words, and boy, you're into it. The volcano blows and troubles are brewing. Some of you look at me, I don't know what you're talking about, preacher. Okay, that's fine. Great. Okay, write your book on marriage. Okay, but anyway. So, you know, the buttons get pushed, the lever gets pulled, and you know what you need to say? Wait a second. You know, Jesus, I just need victory. I, need, I can't do this. Soft answer, turn of the way wrath. Okay, God, here we go. I'm going to frame a soft answer. But I'm trusting you for the strength because I can't do it. The point, point is, friends, whatever area of failure we have in our Christian life always comes because of some measure of self-dependence. Self-dependence. Every area of defeat in your life goes back to self-dependence. Every area of it. Because what God is simply saying, I can do how many things through Christ? Does anyone want to tell me how many things can you do? All things. 
So the problem with failure in our Christian life has nothing to do with Jesus because he lives inside of us and is ready to enable us. The problem is self-dependence. You know what happens when we get self-dependence? You know what happens if you try to walk on water and it doesn't work? Blah, blah, blah. You know what I'm talking about? Get out, blah, blah, blah. Get back out, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to try harder, blah, blah, blah. Pretty soon you give up. Have you ever noticed that? Why do people give up on reading the Bible? Why do people give up on prayer? Why do people give up on evangelism? Why do people give up on uh, having victory in their life over some sin issue? I'll tell you why they give up. Because they keep blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Down they go. I can't walk on water. I can't do this. And you know, God's up in heaven saying, of course you can't. That's the point. In other words, I put this to teenagers everywhere. Failure is God's reminder that you cannot live the Christian life on your own strength. Every time you fail, God is tapping you on the shoulder and said, see, you can't do this. You tried it again, didn't work. But we're pretty dense. We don't get it, do we? We get back and boom, I'm going to try again. Try harder the next time. Pray harder the next time. Boom, down we go. So what God is trying to help us understand is that uh, the Christian life is 0-100. Now, I don't know about you. That's kind of liberating, isn't it? <laughs> Now, I'm going to just be honest with you. Getting out of the boat is scary. Did you know that, too? That's kind of scary. But you'll never walk on water until you get out of the boat. In fact, the, really the whole idea of the thing is depend on Jesus and obey. You know, I think, I really think this is true. Somebody ought to write a song called Trust and Obey. Wouldn't that be a great song? But you know, the Christian life is trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to what? If you trust but don't obey, guess what that means? You really didn't trust. <laughs> and if you obey and don't trust, guess what that means? Blah, blah, blah. That's what that means. The only way to make the Christian life to work is to trust and then obey. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Okay, preacher, you make it sound so easy. Preachers do that. They make it sound so easy, and I'm going to get out of the boat, take three steps, and I'm going to take my eyes off Jesus, and down I'm going to go just like Peter. Can I just tell you, that's not a matter of if it might happen. It's a matter of when it's going to happen. You're going to take your eyes off Jesus, and you're going to go down. You say, hey, I told you, preacher, I'm staying in the boat. I'm not interested in blah, blah, blah. Well, can I tell you something? Peter didn't go blah, blah, blah. So what did Peter do when he took his eyes off Jesus? The answer is he shot up a flare prayer. You ever heard of a flare prayer? That's when you cut to the chase. That's when you don't say, dear Jesus, thank you for this day. Because if Peter had done that, it would have been, dear Jesus, thank you for this day, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Man, he shot that flare prayer up. Three words. Anybody know what they were? Lord, save me. Now, let me help you with that, Lord, save me, because this really helped me. You ever heard the terminology, accepting Jesus Christ as your personal, fill in the blank, help me out now, accepting Jesus Christ as your personal. Can I change that for a moment without changing it? Accepting Jesus Christ as your personal EMT. Accepting Jesus Christ as your personal fireman. Accepting Jesus Christ as your personal rescue worker. Accepting Jesus Christ as your personal lifeguard. You getting this? You know what a savior is, don't you? It's a rescuer. That's what a savior is. So can I say this? When you got saved, Jesus didn't stop his rescue work. He started it. Now, the very first thing is rescue you from hell, from the penalty of sin. But the rest of your life, he wants to rescue you from the power of sin. So every one of you, when you start walking on water, guess what? You have a personal rescuer inside of you. You see, Jesus was outside of Peter, but he's inside of us. So the moment we take our eyes off the Lord and down we go. 
Lord, save me, deliver me, rescue me. And the Bible says Jesus is right there. Now, I want to ask you a question. What do you think Jesus did? He grabbed him. We know that much. The scripture is silent on this, so we've got to use sanctified imagination. Do you think he took him half submerged, dragged him back to the boat, picked him up, and threw him in the boat? You're laughing, so I know what you think. No, he walked on the water back to that boat. So don't you think he can do it to you too? Zero 100 is not a life of perfection. Zero 100 is a life of direction. In other words, it simply means this. You've come to convincement, I can do nothing without Christ. So that when you try to and down you go, oh, Lord, by the way, Lord Jesus, here I am again. Lord, I need you. Zero 100, Jesus. Without you, I can do nothing. And I will tell you, friends, by the way, you know what got Peter in trouble, don't you? Fear. You know what gets you in trouble, don't you? Fear. Do you know fear and faith don't coexist? Have you ever noticed that? The beginning of fear uh, is the end of faith. And the beginning of faith is the end of fear. <laughs> That's kind of nice, isn't it? <laughs> so it's the solution. Obviously, the solution to our, even our fear problem. And by the way, because of um, some of the dysfunctional homes, we talked about that this morning, there's a lot of fear in people's hearts. But there doesn't need to be. So, uh, so, the, so uh, we're seeing here tonight that the clarity of the Christian life, it's zero and hundred. Now, uh, I'm hoping that you're seeing that the simplicity is simply Jesus speaks to us through his word, sometimes through his spirit. Sometimes it's at that cash register, give him a gospel track. You ever had that happen? And at that point, the moment Jesus speaks, you've got, you got a choice. Stay in the boat and stay comfortable and grieve the Holy Spirit or get out of the boat and trust Jesus to enable you to do what you know you can't do unless he enables you to do it. There's nobody in this room, nobody, that God can't, couldn't use even this week to spiritually impact somebody. In fact, it's my contention that everybody in this room, God wants you to impact people all week long spiritually if you'll just listen to Jesus and get out of the boat and trust Jesus to enable you to do it. He's got people everywhere. Did you know that Jesus is always constantly ripening the harvest? You know what I mean by that, don't you? What did he tell his disciples? The fields are already ripened. Don't you get this, guys? There's ripened harvest everywhere. The problem isn't with the harvest. The problem, he said, is the laborers are, anybody know? Few. Well, the truth is, they're really not few in the sense that um, there's just a handful of Christians. What it means is there's only a few Christians that are getting it. <laughs> The Christians that are getting it are realizing, yeah, the harvest is plenteous. And so what I'm going to do is get out of the boat and trust Jesus to enable me to be a part of the harvest laborers because he can enable me to do it. If you have never won anybody to Jesus, that could change this week. Or if it's a long time, that could change this week. You say, oh, preacher, I don't know. That's impossible. That's the void. That's the void. But it'll never happen until you get out of the boat. I was 16 years old. And a growing conviction in my heart, God had called me to preach. There's only one huge problem. And for me at 16, it was enormous. <laughs> I was shy. Now, I, I, I've, I don't know I'll poll you here tonight. I want you to come back, so I won't poll you. But uh, sometimes I'll poll an audience and say, hey, how many of you are extroverts? I just love that question. Because the extroverts go, ooh, 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 me, 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 me. You know, then I say, how many of you are ambiverts? That's kind of in between an extrovert and an introvert. I love the ambiverts. They just kind of raise their hand. They're not, you know, just not shy about it. But yeah, I'm, I'm kind of somewhere in between. And then I say, how many of you are introverts? They won't even raise their hand. You know what I'm talking about? There's no way. Hey, anybody looking at them, you know? So they're not even going to raise their hand. Some of you introverts are saying, don't ask that question. <laughs> okay. So 
That was me. I'm an introvert. You know, in other words, just, uh, you know, just let me be in my part of the world and, and, and uh, I'll be fine. You know, God has a sense of humor. He calls introverts to preach. Did you know that? So uh, I'm 15 years old and my uncle is preaching from the platform at our Christian school. 250 kids in 7th to 12th. Big Christian school. And my uncle's preaching from a wheelchair. And he says to me, I believe I'm a sophomore if I'm remembering correctly. He says, Jimmy. That's what they called me back then. Jimmy, read such and such a passage of scripture. Oh, oh, that was terrible. I'll never forget it. Terrible. All you introverts can relate with this. Like this big apple came in my throat, you know. And then all of us blonde people, you know what happens, don't you? It's the thermometer effect. You know what I'm talking about. You can just feel the red going up. And you feel your face beating with just heat. Tears brimmed up in both of my eyes. I thought I'm going to cry. I'm going to cry. This is terrible. Tears going on. This is terrible. I choked out those verses, sat down, closed my Bible, and said, that's terrible. I hope that never happens again. Now, I don't know about you. That doesn't seem to be a good candidate for preaching. What do you think? But God, like I said, he has a sense of humor. He called me to preach, and I knew it. I knew it. And I knew it like anything. I'll never forget that night in, I believe it was June, early June. And uh, I was sitting over on this side of, the, of a chapel. My dad had uh, just they had built out in the suburbs trying to plant a church out there. And about 250 people, was, it was packed. And this was, um, the church was actually moving out, so it was not a normal church plant situation. But it was, uh, uh, we were also trying to move the church out, and people from the suburbs were coming. And I remember I was sitting on over this side of the auditorium, and my dad preached that night. I don't remember a word he said because I was wrestling with God. And that invitation was given. I got out of my seat, walked down, grabbed my dad's hand with deep emotion said to my dad, Dad, I think God's calling me to preach. I will never forget my dad's answer, never, to this day. It's a tremendous blessing to me. He said, Son, your mother and I have been praying for you a long time. We've known it for a long time. We've been praying for you. Shocked me, stunned me. You say, Preacher, was the burden lifted? Were you excited? Were you thrilled? No, I was miserable. How would you like to publicly yield to something you can't do? I remember going on the back lobby thinking, what did you just do? I'm thinking, oh, this is terrible. I thought I got my senior year of high school, freshman year of college, sophomore year of college, junior year of college, senior year of college. Maybe something will happen. Maybe I'll get zapped. <laughs> Maybe I'll get bit by a spider. No, I'm just teasing. Okay. But you know, the point is, I, I, was, um, I was just thinking, what am I going to This is terrible. <laughs> and because uh, I knew I couldn't do it. So I'm out in the back lobby in absolute misery, miserable. I remember that, just like it was yesterday. Well, I made a commitment to God, so I said, okay, I'm just going to do it. I guess I'll fail, but let's, I'll die trying. You know what I'm talking about? So I began to pursue the God's call in my life because I knew it was God's will. I just knew it. Even though I felt completely incapable, I knew that that's what I needed to do. So I began to follow that call in my life. Well, my senior year of high school, my dad began to do something. You know what he began to do? <laughs> My dad was well-known in the Chicago area, and all the independent Baptists would call him for advice. And He'd get calls all the time. Brother Ben Gelderen, I'm going to be out of town on Sunday. Could you send a staff member over to take the pulpit? And you know what my dad started saying? Oh, my 16-year-old son just called to preach. I'll send him over. <laughs> he got about two more calls. That was it. Okay. Word got all over town. Don't call Dr. Van. Okay. I remember my very first assignment in Oak Park, Illinois. My dad uh, drew a map. Most of you people are old enough to know what I'm talking about. Some of the young people are clueless. Drew a map? Yeah, yeah, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't, okay. But anyway, drew a map. And, you know, I look back. He didn't even go with me. Just hand me the map, gave me the times, and son, son, they'll be waiting for you. I need you to go over there and preach a Sunday morning message. Sunday morning message. 
Well, I got over to this historic church, old church, stained glass windows. I walk in. I'm telling you, I'm 16 years old, and the place looked like an old folks' home. You know what I'm talking about? No offense, folks, if you're a little bit older. No offense. No. But it looked like an old folks' home. I'm telling you, when you're 16 years old, I mean, even the 40-year-old people, they look like they got one foot in the grave and slipping fast. You know what I'm talking about when you're 16. You know? 40 is over the hill. I mean, they're almost gone. And uh, the youngest person in the church had to be 40. That was it. And, of course, when you're 16, I, I, so I, I thought, what do I, I can't preach to these people. I'm thinking, what do I preach on, robbing Medicare? What do I preach on, you know? I'm talking, <laughs> so, um, so I remember getting up on that pulpit. I had a message. I mean, it looked like the sorriest message you've ever heard. <laughs> I remember I got up over my Bible, and I preached about 25, 30, 35, I don't know, somewhere in there. You know how it is when, when you're a young preacher, you just roll on to the end. You're thinking, this is bad, but i got to finish the outline, and you're just rolling through. And uh, I'm sure I bored those dear people to tears. You say, preacher, how do you know? Well, I've got this theory. If you're bored preaching, they're probably bored listening. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> if you're up thinking, man, when's this guy going to be done? They are probably too. I finished the message. I was so embarrassed. The problem coming from a good church with a, a dad who could preach, I knew what good preaching was, and I knew what good preaching wasn't. You know what I'm talking about? And I knew I, to use preacher talk, I had laid an egg. That means it's bad. So... Um, Honestly, if I hadn't known better, I'd have snuck out of the past. I snuck out of the back of the church and gotten out of there. But I knew I couldn't do that. I was a preacher's kid. I knew better. I knew I had to go to the door, have people come by, and lie to me. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? That's what I knew happened. That's what they did. And so, sure enough, I'm standing there and. And again, no offense, uh, all senior saints here, but these dear old ladies would come by and they'd pat my hand and they'd say, oh, sonny boy, that was a wonderful, wonderful message. I'm thinking to myself, you sure you had your hearing aid turned on? You know, that's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, this is unbelievable. I was so embarrassed. And they all go out, you know, and, and the guy in his 40s, he was the youngest guy in the church, he comes up to me and hands me an envelope. He said, Brother Van Gelderen, this is your honorarium. Till that moment, it never occurred to me I'd get paid for that message. I wouldn't have paid a blood nickel for that message, I'm just telling you. It wasn't worth anything to me. I couldn't believe it. I felt like a thief, but I'm a preacher's kid. I know you can't give the honorarium back. They'd be insulted. I honestly didn't want to keep it. I'm telling you the honest truth. Um, so I, I, I go out in the parking lot, and I open it up. Enormous amount of money. So enormous, it's embarrassing. 50 bucks. You say, well, Richard, you know, that's not a lot for a Sunday morning. 1976, pre-Jimmy Carter. That was a lot of money. You could fill your gas tank up 10 times. You remember that? <laughs> With 50 bucks. And uh, you can go to McDonald's 50 times, get a hamburger, large Coke, and a fry, and get change left over. I remember the commercial. Okay, but anyway, so a lot of money. So I get in the car and drive home. And uh, I remember thinking to myself on the way home, you know, I thought people said you're supposed to like it. I didn't like that. So that's the beginning of my preaching career, okay? What about that? And so, not too promising. So I um, continued on, you know, got out of high school. I knew I was going to go to Bible college. My dad had already told me where he wanted me to go. And so I enroll and get there, scared half to death because I knew I couldn't do it. But I began the ministerial training, started going on an extension and, and uh, some defeat. A little bit uh, began to, God began to open my eyes and, I had some preaching experiences that had some victory, but I don't think I had what I would call full victory, particularly with an adult congregation. 
It was my freshman summer, so this would be two years now after my call to preach, my freshman summer, after my freshman year of college. And uh, at the end of the summer, my dad got up to the Marquette Manor Baptist Church, which at this time, the church was just in a, a real growth spurt, uh, run about uh, 500 people on a Sunday night. And he said, my brother, uh, my son Jim is going to preach on Sunday night uh, in August before he goes back to school. I want everybody to be there. So um, I, I had grown enough. I was excited. I began to study the Bible. Of course, I had no clue how to do a message, none. It was a homiletical disaster. And, and so I'm working on this message, and, and finally the day shows up. Oh, we eat lunch, and after lunch I tell the entire family, okay, I got the basement. Nobody bugged me. I got the basement. I got to get ready for tonight. So they all understood. They obliged. They gave me the basement. I went downstairs, and for three hours, friends, I was in absolute misery. I remember just crying out to God, God, I can't do this. God, I've, I've, I, you know I can't do it. I've tried this before. God, I can't do this. God, you've got to do something. God, you've got to do something. It's one thing to bore people that you'll never see till you get to heaven. By that time, they'll have forgiven you. And it's another thing to bore the hometown crowd that you've known all of your life. You know what I'm talking about? I was petrified. You say, why don't you work on your message? Well, I'll be honest with you. My message was on life support, and three hours could not have resuscitated it. You know what I'm talking about? I knew it was past hope. I, I knew that if God didn't intervene, no amount of study could bail me out. And for three hours, I'd work on my sermon a little bit, but most of the time I was saying, God, you've got to do something. God, I can't do this. God, please. I'll never forget about 5 o'clock, somebody yelled down the stairs, service at 6. Okay, Jimmy, time to go. I remember walking up those wooden stairs, and I guess the only analogy I can think of is walking up to your execution. You know what I'm talking about? I've never been executed, but I'm convinced I know the feeling. Okay, you know what I'm talking about? I'm going up those stairs thinking this is awful. This is terrible. I get in the car, we drive over to the church, I get out, and make a long story short, finally end up on the platform with my dad. And I will tell you, friend, when I'm on the platform, I look out, and the Marquette Manor Baptist Church that night was jammed. I mean, 500-plus people. Everybody was there to see the preacher's kid go down in flames. They're all there, man. We got we to gotta be here for this historic night. I'm, I'm, I'm up on the platform. I'm, I'm, I'm begging God. I'm saying, God, I can't do this. God, God, what, I'm in, God I can't do this. My dad gets up. He announces that I'm going to preach. I remember going to that pulpit scared half to death. I remember putting my Bible out, putting my sorry outline out, putting my hands on either side of the pulpit because that's how my dad preached. He didn't move. And uh, he just would preach, and he could hold people spellbound, not moving, just at unusual ability. And, and uh, uh, so I, I'm, I'm starting to, and all of a sudden, I, I'm finished reading the text, and I'm starting to preach my message, when all of a sudden, friend, all I can say is this. I knew I was not in the pulpit alone. I knew it. And all of a sudden, I remember moving from this side of the pulpit over to this side. It was kind of an auditorium with two sections, not three like you have two. And I looked over this section, looked like a bunch of sinners on that side. And I started going after it. And I remember preaching. And all of a sudden, I'd say something. I'd think to myself, that is really good. Where did that come from? Because that's not in the notes. That was really good. I've got to remember that one. And I remember coming over this side. I looked like a bunch of ones over here and started going after this side. Same thing happened over here. I preached for 45 minutes. And I'm going to tell you something, friends. I loved every minute of it from start to finish. I remember came to the finish, gave the invitation. I will never forget that invitation. People pouring down the aisles, people I've known most of my life, someone with tears in their eyes, someone with tears coming down their cheeks, getting right with God. And I wish I could tell you from that point to this, I've never had to learn that truth again, but that would not be true. I've had to learn that truth, relearn that truth 
many times. In fact, I don't think I really understood what even happened that night. But I will tell you, friends, that that night God began to open my eyes to a simple truth. You know what it is? Zero, 100. It's not just for preaching. It's for every aspect of the Christian life. Zero, 100. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of Crown Point Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, please consider leaving us a review or sharing the message on social media. Thanks once again for tuning in.